0: Hello, welcome to the podcast of Jesper Baptist Church. I do apologize for this episode being put up a little late, but we've had some busy Sundays lately and work has been very busy, but at least we're getting it up there now. The title of the message for this past Sunday was Honoring God Through Hard Times. Please enjoy. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number four this morning. Second Corinthians chapter number four. Our series is, "I will honor God. I will honor God." Second Corinthians chapter number four this morning. My wife wrote, "I love you. She loves me." Oh." I got man. Second Corinthians chapter four. If you have your places in Second Corinthians chapter four, if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you one last time to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. <coughs> We're going to begin reading in verse number six. Read down through verse number eleven. The Bible says, "For God." "...who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken." Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The title of the message this morning is Honoring God in Hard Times. Honoring God in hard times. Let's pray. Your gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray for our people this morning. I pray for our people who couldn't make it this morning. I pray for our people. Lord, I pray that we would listen to the word of God this morning. We'd open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive your word. And help us, Lord, to just, just like the title of the message says, to honor you in hard times. Be with us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Now, in verse 6, you're going to see the word glory. Um, Edge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You're going to see the word glory there. Now, that word glory in verse 6 is actually the Greek word doxa. Other places in the Bible, that same word doxa is translated as honor. So all the honor that we desire to give, like our series is about honoring God. So the honor that we want to give to God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our example. So to honor God, we see how to do that in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the time of this writing in 2 Corinthians, Paul is being severely, severely attacked. Paul. Some of the things that are being attacked is Paul's credibility as an apostle is being attacked. Another thing that's being attacked is his ability to communicate. See, Paul, he was a preacher, but... He didn't have the excellency of speech that most orators of his time had. He just kind of a, a country preacher who kind of told it like it was. And you know, that, that goes against his upbringing. He was, uh, he was brought up as a Pharisee. So if anybody knows how to speak excellent, it was Paul. He was brought up in that, but he shied away from it. And he just got to the point, well, look, I'm going to put it on the bottom shelf where you can get it. Okay? But people mocked him because of that. And they made fun of him. And they mocked him for not being able to speak well or choosing not to. Another thing that they attacked Paul in is they even attacked his his physical appearance. Which, by the way, is the lowest thing you can do to a person. Now, so... They attacked, they hurled all these attacks at Paul. How did Paul respond to these attacks? Well, we know how me and you would respond. We put our dukes up. We defend ourselves. Man, for everything they say, we say something back. We'll look at me, we'll look at you. And this and this and this. And man, we come back at our defense, but not Paul. Paul didn't do that. Paul's response wasn't to, to defend himself. You know, what Paul's def- you know what Paul's response was? His response was, you're right. You're right. All the things you're saying about me, they are legitimate. I can't speak that well. People do question me as an apostle. You know, maybe I do look a little funny. He, he said, all your complaints are legitimate. And, and even the, Paul even took it a step further. Paul said, not only are your attacks against me legitimate, but actually they're weaknesses that Jesus uses for his glory. These weaknesses inside of me that you're, that you're calling out, these weaknesses in my life, they've been put there to magnify the power of Christ. You see, no longer did it matter. And this is what Jesus did. No longer did it matter how impressive the vessel was. Jesus showed us that what's in the vessel is infinitely more valuable than the vessel itself. The vessel doesn't matter. You don't have to have an impressive vessel. You can have an unimpressive vessel. Because what's in the vessel is way more important. Reminds me of Indiana Jones. He was looking for the cup of Christ, and they got all these big and fancy ones. Oh, but he got the cup of a carpenter, you know? And and, and so, uh, by the way... um, If God always used impressive vessels, you know what we as humans would do? We would magnify the vessel over the God that filled the vessel. That's why he he uses unimpressive vessels. Remember, God uses earthen vessels. These are clay pots. These are clay pots to carry inside of them something which is beyond their value. What if you're proposing to your, fiance, to your soon-to-be fiancé and you get down on one knee and you open the ring box. Oh, the ring is so pretty. And she says, yes. So you take the ring out you pitch it in the garbage and you hand her the ring box. Thank you for marrying me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. See, the container doesn't matter. It's what's in the container It matters. Let's read verse number seven again. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I want you to remember this morning, then, Christian, that God has not required us to be sinless in order to be used. If He did, vessels, it'd be kind of like. You go into the pantry for a cup and there are no clean cups. Okay, you know how aggravating that is. And your husband doesn't load the dishwasher. So. We're getting personal here. Let's back away. I'm sorry. But you see, the thing is, is that, you know, he would be without any vessels except for Christ. Christ would be the only vessel he could use if that was the case. Even the most noblest of saints in the Bible were far from perfect. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Twice he pretended and lied that his wife was his his sister. Moses was the human deliverer of Egypt. He had a fiery temper and even he said of himself he was not a good speaker. David was a man after God's own own heart. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel, but even he was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah boldly confronted hundreds of prophets of a false God in the name of the God of Israel, but ran and hid when Jezebel got after him in doubt and fear. Isaiah, the noble prophet, he confessed of being a man of unclean lips. And what that means, that means he had a potty mouth and he fought it all the time. Don't think you're alone in that. Don't think you're alone. You stub your toe, you do something. You grew up saying these words and man, you want to say one and you think you're horrible for that. Isaiah faced the same thing you faced just because it's a, just because you have a battle in that. Being tempted is not a sin. It's a sin to give in to temptation. Because you have that thought and you're tempted to say that, that doesn't make you a horrible person. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. Isaiah fought that same battle. Peter, leader of the twelve apostles, openly confessed that he was a sinful man and he proved it by cursing and repeatedly denying the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, one of the Sons of Thunder, he jealously thought to, wanted to stifle another man's ministry just because he wasn't part of his own group. And then, when a Samaritan village rejected Christ, he wanted fire brought down upon them. And here's Paul. Just another clay pot and a line of clay pots that God has successfully used. He was a genuine apostle in spite of his humanity. It's, it's, it's not evident from his human abilities or his human skills or his human achievements, but from his spiritual character. As this passage unfolds in Second Corinthians, the, 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 the characteristic that, characteristics that marked Paul as a very useful clay pot As he was humble, he was invincible, he was sacrificial, he was fruitful, he was faithful, he was hopeful, he was worshipful. Now, earlier in the first book of Corinth, the the church at Corinth, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 26-29, through listen to this. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring not things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. What we have now is we have to... We we see here one of the unexplained paradoxes in the Bible. You see, because of the Holy Ghost filling these unimpressive earthen vessels, they become remarkably resilient up against the challenges of life. How are they so resilient? They're unimpressive. But these clay pots, these earthen vessels, when they're filled with the Spirit of God, uh, they become remarkable beacons of light in any culture, through any challenge, in all persecutions, beyond any political leader, at any time. It's just amazing. You take an earthen vessel, and that's what we are. We're nothing but clay pots, worthless, breakable. But you fill them with the Spirit of God, and they remarkably almost become unbreakable. What I'm going to tell you this morning is I've got three statements about affliction. I've got three statements about affliction. Statement number one, affliction does not bring destruction. Affliction does not bring destruction. Let's look at verses eight and nine. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. What I want to do is I want to look at the individual words in this passage this morning. First, let's look at the word troubled. It means to press hard upon, to be in a narrow place. Simply put, it means to be under pressure. The, the idea, um, it, it has to do with the idea of Paul being hunted. You see, Paul was a hunted wanted man because of what he did for Jesus. Acts 8 of uh, Acts 23:12 says, "And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul." 40 men had came together and said, "We are not going to eat, we are not going to drink until Paul is dead." Paul knew what it was like to be hunted. Do you ever feel hunted? Do you ever feel like everything and everybody is out to get you? Do you feel like your circumstances around you, do you feel like they're closing in? And the more you struggle to get out of them, the tighter and tighter the grip, the, the, the grip gets. And it seems like you can't win for losing. And it seems like all your life is, is fighting on the outside and fear on the inside. Well, Paul knew what that felt like, too. But then the next word we're going to look at is not distressed. And that means not crushed. All of this pressure, but yet Paul wasn't crushed. You know, living as a wanted, hunted man means terrible stress. And it means every moment of every day you're under stress. But Paul was not crushed by the stress. In fact, Even with all this pressure on Paul, Paul still found a way to live for God. How is that? You see, when a lost person feels this pressure, they have no no place to go. They've got no way to go. They have no escape. They're like a person cornered against a cliff with no options. You see, a Christian, though, A Christian has options when the world does not. A Christian has options when the world does not. A Christian, well I already mentioned this once, a Christian is guaranteed an escape from temptation every single time should they choose to use it. A Christian can get comfort from heaven when no comfort can be found on the earth. A Christian has access to, to God's endless love, when everyone they care about has quit loving them, they have access to God's ending love. And when the world writes you off, you have access to a throne of grace that is all the grace you will ever need. A Christian, when nobody will listen to you, can bend the ear of the Creator anytime they want to. And a lost man is utterly alone. Do you know why we don't cave into pressure when the lost people do? Because we have options. I'm not saying Christians don't cave. I'm saying Christians don't have to. Because we have options when the world runs out of options. Somebody under Paul's circumstances would have buckled. Somebody under Paul's circumstances would have given up. They would have taken their ball. They would have went home. But Paul had something greater inside of him. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The next word we're going to look at is perplexed. Now, the word perplexed means here, it means to be without resource. To be without resource. Just because God was with Paul and he didn't cave under pressure didn't, doesn't mean that Paul had all the answers. It doesn't mean that he magically had all the answers to the contrary. The word perplexed here means that he didn't know what to do. Um, he hesitated. He hesitated. At every decision, he doubted at every move. His anxiety was sky high, almost like a traveler with no map. Now, even just a few years ago, you had to go to Walmart and buy a special GPS thing. But now we all have GPS on our phones. But back in the day, back in the day when you're on a road trip and you left your Atlas at home, you had one option. You had to go to the rest stop. You see the rest stop, you pull over, you go into that rest stop, and right in between the men's restroom and the ladies' restroom was a water fountain, and right beside the water fountain was a big map with the whole state on it, and on that map was a black arrow pointing to a red dot, and underneath were the words, you are here. And that was your only option. Back before GPS, that's what we had to do. Where am I at? Where's the rest stop? I'll tell you. Where are we at? Paul doesn't have a rest stop. He doesn't have a big map beside the restroom saying, you are here. See, before, when we said when we talk about the word troubled, that word trouble meant seeing what's going around you in your present. But the word perplexed, it speaks to being unsure about the future. It it speaks to, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen. I'm not entirely sure what direction this is going to take. I'm not entirely sure which direction to steer the ship. Our world is like that today. Not knowing what direction to take. Not knowing what direction to steer the ship. And that's why we think, The answer to our problems is getting rid of the police department and canceling Paw Patrol. Because that's the answer to our problems. Yeah, they say, oh, let's stop glorifying the police. Yes, if we take law and order and live PD off the air, it'll fix our problems. Do you not see the perplexity in that? Do you not see the ship going round and round in circles with nobody at the wheel? I mean, do you know the real reason why they take those shows off the order? Because they don't want you to see cops being nice to people. That's the truth. They, they want you to think the police are bad. So they're taking off any show. And it, it, it amazes me. We want, they say we want better police. Let's take off all the shows that show good police. How much sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. I guess they forgot when those police officers ran in those towers. 9-11. And those firefighters that gave their lives, and those police officers that gave their lives under hundreds and thousands of tons of concrete and steel. We forgot about that. Instead of rioting, the churches should have been filled. Because the answer was not burning down businesses the, and hurting yourself and hurting your own community. The answer is Jesus, and the answer is found in church. Jesus is the answer, not a cartoon police puppy. Paul said, even though He didn't know what direction to go in. It says here he was not in despair. And that means not destitute of resource. It's almost like Paul is saying, I'm at a loss, but I'm not at a total loss. It's like he's at the brink of defeat, but not defeated. It's kind of like, I I look at it like this. It's kind of like you made the decision you're going out to eat Friday night. Payday, you're going out to eat. You're going to the Olive Garden, the creme de la creme of modern-day restaurants. And you know what you're going to get, the tour of Italy. Oh, but before that, you're going to have two or three bowls of that salad, pick out the black olives. You're going to get some breadsticks, and man, they're just... Three or four baskets of breadsticks are going to come to that table and, and you're, and you're going to get the tour Italy and that's going to have the spaghetti and the lasagna and the chicken parmigiana and then it's just going to be so good and you're looking forward to it and you've been thinking about it all week and then Friday gets here and that paycheck hits and there was a bill you forgot about and that check you wrote a couple weeks ago that you forgot about that hit. So you, now you can't go to the Olive Garden. But at least you can go home and eat a ham sandwich. You know that ham sandwich will always be there. But here's the thing. You didn't get what you wanted. But praise God in the hard times, you can still have a ham sandwich. And sometimes we need to thank God For the ham sandwich. That even in the hard times when things aren't going my way. And things aren't looking up. At least I got something. At least I know I can still survive. Yes you might not know what the future holds. But don't focus on the destination if you can't see it. Just focus on the next single step. And I guarantee you. If you take enough of those next good single steps. Eventually you will get where you're supposed to go. You know when God usually shows up for a Christian? God usually shows up for a Christian when they're at the end of their rope. When they're at the end of their hope. Elijah was sitting hungry, parched, thirsty, beside a dried up brook. He was at the end of his resources, he was at the end of his road, he was at the end of his hope, he was at the end of his rope. And then there was a widow, she was at the end of her flower. She was at the end of her oil. She was at the end of her hope and the end of her rope. But they were both fed and cared for. God brought them together and they helped each other out. And what I equate that to is a fellow Christian or brother helping out another Christian or brother, uh, Christian brother or sister. Because let me tell you something. When you go to a fellow Christian for help, they are not only helping you, but you are helping them. By, by allowing them to help you, you have helped them. But then two, two chapters later, Elijah's back in trouble again. Elijah now, he's at the end of his rope again. He doesn't have any resources again. And this time an angel comes and feeds him and an angel helps him. But not until after he had crawled under a juniper tree and begged to die. That had to happen first, before the angel came. You see, at the end of our resources is when God's resources kick in. Next, we'll see the word persecuted. That word persecuted, it means made to run, driven away, and hunted. You know, and unlike troubled and perplexed, this has more to do with an attack on your faith. Family members turn on you because you hold a Bible standard that, that they don't. You know, people just can't agree to disagree anymore. It's like that has it's gone from our society. Everything is so personal. And if you don't believe the way I believe, I'm going to get triggered. I'm going to go off on you. I'm going to Facebook blast you. And then I'm going to have nothing to do with you. We can't be friends anymore. The liberal left is the most intolerant people on the planet. Just look at at them canceling all these TV shows. It's ludicrous. It's absurd. It's stupid. You can't look at that and tell me it's not intolerance. One one, One cop killed a man. Now all cops are bad. Tell me that's not intolerance. You vote your standards and you vote for the candidate that has policies that line up closest to your convictions. Not exactly your convictions, just as close as you can get to your convictions. But then the left says, if you do vote for him, then you condone every sin that he's ever committed. And that is ludicrous. If Billy Graham come back alive and run for president, I vote for him. Until that happens, I'm going to get as close as I can get with the options I'm given. Let's get back to your personal life. Maybe you're doing your best to live for God. Somebody's mocking you or somebody's hating you for it. Then the Bible says not forsaken. You know what that word forsaken means? It means abandoned. See, the Lord didn't leave Paul while he was on the run. You see, Christian, you will be abandoned by man. But you will never be abandoned by God, even though Jesus was. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he was abandoned by both God and man. And in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried aloud with a voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, Jesus will never let you go through what he went through. His sufferings will always exceed those of his people. What's one of my goals as a parent? One of my goals as a parent is to make sure that these two boys don't experience the same pain that I had to experience. So I'm going to do my best to keep them and teach them and keep them away from that pain because I don't want them to have to go through it. See, and that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus says, I know what it's like to be abandoned by both man and God, and I can promise as long as I am your daddy, it will never happen to you. And that's why he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then it says, cast down. And that means thrown down, as in like a wrestling match. I was playing a pickup game of football at a summer camp one time when I was a teenager. And I'm a big guy, so I'm hard to get past, okay? But there was this young cocky dude on the other side, and he was like, I can get past anybody. Well, he tried to get past me a few times and couldn't. Well, then he said, oh, I'm going to get past him this time. He told his buddies that I was unaware of this. And so the ball snapped, and he got the ball, and he started running right at me. Now, obviously, he was faster than I am, okay? There was plenty of room around me, but he was making a beeline toward me. And as soon as I saw him coming and saw there was nobody around me, I knew exactly what he was doing. So I was like, I'm going to get ready. I got ready for him, and we were getting ready to clash, and right before we came together, he reared back and took his head and hit me, bam, right in the temple, bam, just head-butted me right in the temple. I hit the ground like a lead balloon. I immediately saw stars. When everything finally, when I finally came back to, I felt like I had been knocked in the head with a Louisville slugger. I had to sit out the game for just a couple of minutes, but then the next it says, not destroyed. And that means not ruined. What that basically means, Paul is saying, I have gotten knocked down, but I am not out. Amen. You know, I went down that day, but I got back up and I got back in the game. You see, when you experience failure, Christian, get back up because you can. See, a vessel filled with the Spirit of God can handle way more abuse than one that isn't. For an earthen vessel to endure all of this only magnifies the life of Christ in him. You may have gotten knocked down just so you can get back up and glory, and give Jesus the glory for it. That may have been the only reason why you got knocked down. And it's surprising that earthen vessels should bear and suffer so much and not fall and not be broken to pieces. Statement number two. Affliction is for the purpose of purification. Skip down to verse number 17 in chapter 4. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When Paul writes our light affliction, we wonder, man, Paul, have you ever been through any real trials? Some may think, well, Paul, maybe your affliction is light, but mine certainly is not. If you, Paul, if you only knew how much I am suffering, uh, it's unbearable for me, Paul. My suffering is not light. Well, I want you to know this morning, Paul wasn't writing as if he was a kindergartner in the school of suffering. Paul had an advanced degree in it, okay? He described some of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28 stripes, prisons, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of waters robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness often and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. And those were just the physical outward sufferings. He's not mentioning the spiritual attacks he had to endure. If Paul's affliction is light then, what is ours lighter than light? In America, we don't know what it's like to suffer like Paul suffered. Why is our affliction light and not heavy? Because even at the worst, even at the absolute worst affliction you got, compared to eternity, it's just a moment. If you had a person that lived to be 100 years old and suffered every single day of their life, compare that to eternity, it's nothing. It's nothing when compared to eternity. It's just but for a moment. Why is our affliction light and not heavy? Because of what God is accomplishing through us in our affliction. A far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. You see, the scriptures are clear. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans 8, 17. You see, glory is tied to suffering. God will accomplish in us a glory far heavier than the affliction we have suffered. So Paul says it like this. You get a scale. You take all the affliction you've got and you've put it on this side and even put your thumb on it and push down. And then take the weight of the eternal glory that God will give you and put it on the other side. Then you tell me if your affliction is light or not. That's what he's saying. Yes, our affliction is light. Our affliction is light compared to what others are suffering. Our affliction is light compared to what we deserve. Our affliction is light uh, compared to what Jesus suffered for us. Our affliction is light compared to the blessings we enjoy. Our affliction is light as we experience the sustaining power of God's grace. Our affliction is light when we see that glory is what glory is leading us to. With Paul, we can say, yes, our affliction is light And the weight, the weight of God's glory, it's an eternal weight. It's a heavy weight. So you know what the problem is? The problem isn't so much that I'm focusing on my light affliction. That's not the problem. The problem is is that I'm not focusing on how heavy God's glory is. See, looking at the affliction is not the problem because you're going to have affliction. That's going to happen. And it's light compared to that glory. But we never look at that glory. We never put that glory on the scale. And without that glory on the scale, our affliction's down here. But you put that glory we're going to get on the other side, it's, the affliction is nothing. Charles Spurgeon wrote, God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets. See, when God puts us through the fire, we don't often think of why He puts us through the fire. And He does it for the glory of Christ. He do it for His glory. Certainly, James writes. Uh, as James writes, adversity brings uh, completion in the life of the believer. And the purpose is ultimately bring glory to God. Number three, my last point this morning, affliction brings about transformation. Affliction brings about transformation. Let me read for you Isaiah 48, 10 and 11. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. Now this passage is about the nation of Israel But it still has an application for us today. See, why did disobedient Israel feel the refining fires of the Lord? Well, the Bible says for his sake and his honor and his glory. Wait, hold on a second, Brother Brett. Are you trying to tell me the reason why I am suffering is just so he can get the glory? Let me ask you a question. Does that bother you? If it bothers you, you need to remember this. You are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the universe. You know who is? God is the center of the universe. And everything he does and everything he allows is to further his own eternal purpose. We're in the process of updating our facility here. And we've got projects lined up that we want to do. We know it's going to take money, it's going to take time, but also it's going to take effort. Let me tell you something. Transformations come at a great cost. When you've got a piece of land and you want to transform that land, it costs a lot to do that. But that's nothing compared to the cost that me and you experience when God is transforming our lives. Mount Rushmore was built with some of the harshest tools known to man. If it was built today, it'd be a lot easier. But back in those days when they built Mount Rushmore, it was some of the harshest back-breaking tools you could possibly have. Now let me tell you something they didn't use at Mount Rushmore. They did not use a manicure set to make Mount Rushmore. You know what they used? explosives, great hammers, and sharp chisels. God, listen to me, Christian. God is not going to use a manicure set to transform your life. He's going to use explosives. He's going to use hammers. And he's going to use chisels. And more often than not, God's a little more direct than we would want him to be. But see, it's only under these circumstances that you get turned and transformed into the vessel that he wants you to be. Home until last week, I didn't know who Oswald Chambers was until Brother Jr. mentioned his name to me. And then I get to looking into the guy, and he's got some pretty good quotes. Let me read you one To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. I submit to you that there are fewer way, there are few ways in which you can honor God more than choosing to trust Him, even in the furnace of affliction. The question that remains, Christian, will you submit yourself to His will even if it means a hammer and a chisel?